Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word now and we pray that your desires would be our desires, that your thoughts would be our thoughts, that the goals that you have for our lives would be the goals that we want for our lives too, because we love Jesus, because we want his character and image to be worked out in our lives, because we want to honor him. And so as we come to your word now, be our great teacher for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture passage this morning is Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44, and you'll find that on page 849 of the Pew Bible, Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. I remember a number of years ago now helping my parents build a a, uh, carport on their property, and during the construction project, I was setting some of the roof rafters. Things seemed to be going quite smoothly until I got to the end and I realized the last rafter is not going where it's supposed to. And I thought, oh no, I've gotten off on my measurement and I had to go back and find exactly where it was that I had gotten off and pull up each and every roof rafter and reset them. And you might say the same is true in the Christian life. If we get off at all on our understanding of who God is and our understanding of the gospel of grace, then everything else is off in the Christian life. And Jesus speaks to that point this morning. So let me read to us here Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is it he is his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater uh, condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large psalms, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. A Christian artist by the name of Don Timar shared his testimony and how He was really freed from a lifestyle of works righteousness in order to please God. And he did so by presenting a couple of different portraits. The first portrait was one that he had painted of himself before he was a Christian. It was one in his earlier days and is one which his eyes were sort of uh, sunk back in the shadows and he was looking out into a very confused world. He said it represented his searching for meaning and something significant in life. He talked about how he had pursued that through philosophy, through pleasure, 
through the military, through being part of the counterculture of the 60s and 70s. And then he brought out another portrait, and this was a portrait of Jesus. It was a Romantic era portrait, and the lines were smooth and clean. And Jesus looked very polished and refined. And people in the audience thought, well, this will be the portrait that he will present as the one that brought him comfort and peace. He said just the opposite. When he saw the smooth, clean lines of Jesus' face, he realized there was actually nothing that he could ever do to be that good. And what he said was actually no human portrait could ever reveal the comfort that he found in the gospel except for the portrait that's painted by the words of Scripture that Christ died for the ungodly. My friends, if our picture, you might say, of God is off at all, then our understanding of the gospel of grace and really the Christian life as a whole will be off as well. A, a wrong view of God that is distorted and a wrong view of the gospel will give us wrong approaches to the Christian life. You might say it's sort of like the two brothers in the parable of the prodigal son where the older brother was angry at his father because he had never given him anything even though he had worked and slaved for his father and the younger son was just the opposite. He despised his father because he felt like the father would never bless him with the kinds of things that he wanted. And so he ran off into the world, into the far country to find them. And any kind of distortions of the goodness and graciousness of God will lead us into the far country as well. The same was true here of these Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes. You recall how in this particular chapter, they've each come to Jesus with questions. They want to trap Him. They want to trick Him. But now the Master turns to them with a question of His own. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? Now there's a background to this particular question. The scribes, who were the theologians of the day, were right to tell the people of God and instruct them to say that the Messiah, the anointed one who is coming, will be the son of David. That is to say, from a human vantage point, he will be in the line of King David. And really, the New Testament goes out of its way to speak about this. All you have to do is look at the genealogies of Matthew and of Luke or hear how Paul speaks of Jesus as descending from David according to the flesh in Romans chapter 1. And so the scribes had this high view of the coming Messiah, that he would be the final one in this kingly line of David who will rule over his people. And what they looked for from this human earthly king was deliverance, political deliverance, economic deliverance, religious deliverance, military deliverance. But what they failed to do was really to draw together all the lines of the Old Testament that then converge on the Messiah, that he would not only be human of the line of David, but that he would also be divine. That he would not just be the son of David, but that he would be the son of God as well. And those lines come together for us here in Psalm 110, which is what 
Jesus quotes. And it's the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament because it gives such clear picture of who the Messiah is to be. And here we find David, maybe even at his coronation or the coronation of kings who came after him, who would speak this particular psalm sort of prophetically saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So here the the earthly king is speaking to a king that must be greater, a greater than earthly king that is to come, who is to subdue all the nations, who is to rule over the entire universe, something that no son of David could do if he's merely an earthly king. And so if, if the Messiah is to be the son of David, who is in that sense to be the inferior to David because he's a descendant, how is it? that David could also speak of him as my Lord, greater than me. If the Messianic king was to be the son of David, then says Jesus, how could David speak of him as Lord? He asked the question a different way in verse 37. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the scribes had no answer for this because they're the full understanding of who the Messiah was to be was not clear in their mind. They only had part of the picture. They had taught the people to call Messiah son of David, but they had not told them and taught them to call him Lord. Friends, if you fail to see Jesus, not only as the son of David, but also as the son of God, then you don't see him as he really is. And not only so, but if you don't see the Messiah, not only as the kingly figure who will rule over his people, but as the suffering servant who will conquer sin and death for his people, who would go to the cross and bear the awful punishment meant for sinners like you and me. If you don't see that, then your whole Christian life will be distorted. So why did Jesus ask the question? It's because if we get it wrong, if we get it wrong, then our whole approach to spirituality will be wrong. What you believe about the identity of Jesus is really the crux of the whole human life. All other questions are really peripheral. Who is Jesus? Is he your great Lord? Is he your great Savior? If you get that wrong then your whole life will be out of whack. Interestingly, here we're told that the great throng throng heard him gladly. Maybe they recognized something distorted, something off about the scribes' teaching, and they were piqued in their interest. They thought, well, maybe there is something more to this, and so we'll listen on. But none could actually see that Jesus is the living answer to the question that he posed. And what they really need to do is simply to come to Him. They need Him to be the Savior of their souls to save them from far more than political enemies, from far more than economic enemies or military enemies, but to save them from sin and death. And really what flows from this particular short-sighted view of Jesus is a false approach to spirituality. And that's really the first point here if if we get it wrong, 
false religion results from false views about God. False religion flows from false views about God. Verse 38 here, we're told, be, Jesus says to the, his uh, disciples and the crowd looking on, beware of the scribes. He's giving a warning here. Now, it's not simply that there's something so sinister and corrupt about the scribes, something so uniquely sinful about them that we need to be uh, aware and be uh, weary of the scribes and their particular ministry. There's something greater that Jesus is talking about here. It's not just be beware of those particular people, but it's beware of all those who have the same kind of spirit that the scribes have within themselves. It's a warning because false religion of the scribes is something that's actually endemic to all humankind. It's something that we all face, something that we all struggle with at times. The fundamental attitude, you might say, of the natural man, that is the man who has not come to faith in Jesus, the fundamental attitude of the natural man is what Paul refers to as the spirit of bondage. That the way in which I look at my life before God is in, in bondage and I have to throw off His bondage. And so that ends up looking like a, a legalistic, moralistic spirit. A works-based disposition in the heart of man. I will earn it for myself. And the reason I can say that's fundamental to every natural person is that it was fundamental to our fallen first parents, Adam and Eve. If you remember back in the garden, do you remember what Satan said? Did God really say, as they looked at all the different trees, they looked so wonderful and beautiful, they had great fruit on them, did God really say that you can't eat from any of those trees? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, does God really want to withhold something from you? Does he not want you to be blessed? Is that the kind of God who has made you? Surely you don't want to serve that kind of God. It's sort of like the commercial. I think it's for some kind of bank where there's a man and he's talking to two little girls and he asks the first little girl, would you like a pony? The girl says, sure, I'd, I'd love to have a pony. And so he gives her a little plastic pony. And then he goes over to the second girl and he says, now, would you like a pony? Yes, I'd love a pony. And he walks over this real live pony and hands it to the second girl. And the first girl says, now, wait a minute. You didn't say I could have a real pony. And you see, it's the natural man who looks at God that way. I thought there was something better. Are you, are you, are you withholding something from me? You didn't say I could have something even better than this. And the, the latent belief in everyone who is ever born is that God is somehow withholding something good from us. And when we believe the lie, all of a sudden we're bound in this spirit of bondage where we no longer look upon God as good and gracious, but we look upon Him like the elder brother and the younger brother with great suspicion that there's something in the heart of God that wants to take away all of our joy. And just like all other sins of false belief, it doesn't go away completely when you become a Christian. 
There are other sins that we struggle with. All kinds of false beliefs. They don't just magically disappear right when we become Christians. How do I know that these false views of God last within our hearts? That distorted views of the Christian life live within our hearts? It's because it's evident in the fruit that we bear. At times we're legalistic kinds of people who, who want to garner God's good favor by our works, to try to do more and more, earning His favor, a kind of spirituality is present sometimes in, our, uh, in the church at large and in the life of every believer that feels this way, that if I'm, if I'm better today, God will love me more. And at points, it sort of surges through our lives with great force. And other times, it, it recoils into the background as the gospel makes great gain. And we sort of oscillate back and forth and back and forth. Legalism comes to us out of a suspicion that God is actually narrower and stricter than what he appears to be. Well, if you remember Eve's response to the serpent, she said, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. He never said, don't touch it. You see, legalism at its heart says, I'm going to be narrower and stricter about my obedience and my view of the law than God uh, presents to me because somehow I believe he is actually narrower and stricter. And if I'm more faithful, even than what he prescribes, well, then that's what leads to real blessing in the Christian life. And you see, in that disposition, obedience to the law is now out of relationship to the gospel of grace and to the goodness and graciousness of God. You remember the elder son and the parable of the prodigal son? All these years I've been slaving for you and you never gave me a goat so that I could have a party with my friends. All these years I've been slaving for you. And that's at the heart of a legalistic, works-based mentality. Lord, you are my taskmaster and I must do something that I can earn blessing and favor from you. Now what we often think of as the antithesis to legalism is what's known as antinomianism. It just means anti-law. It's those people who want to throw off the law of God and say, I'll rule my own life. No one is going to tell me what to do. And certainly in our day and age, that's really what fills the culture, isn't it? I'll decide what's right and true. I'll decide what is lawful and what is good. But antinomianism is not the opposite of legalism. Actually, antinomianism, anti-law, and legalism are both the opposite of the gospel of grace. Because neither one of them understand the goodness and the graciousness of God. On the one hand, the legalist views the law as a mean of gazing favor with God. On the other hand, the, the antinomian views the law as restricting and confining a, a bridle that's oppressive. And neither one of them see the law as the means through which we 
love God and love our neighbor, which is the very thing that Jesus has just taught the scribes in the very passage before this. The sum of the law is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so both of these things stem from a false view of who God is, that he's harsh and demanding, that his law is somehow oppressive to us. But you know, even more than that, they both spring from this. They both spring from a rejection of Jesus. I don't need Jesus to be my Savior. And I don't need Jesus to be my Lord. I'll make my own way. I'll establish myself. I'll be good enough. I'll decide what laws and rules are right for me. You see, both of them are contrary to a gospel of grace that it says that Jesus has come to die for his people and he's done so that he might bless them and pour out blessing upon blessing upon his people. All false religions flow from a false view about God and the scribes illustrate both of these false religions perfectly. Verse 38, these scribes are those who like to walk around in long robes. They wore these prayer shawls with tassels on the bottom that were to be an outward demonstration to everybody else that we are, we are a part of the scribes. We are the really righteous of the day. They're the legalists. But you know, they're also, in an ironic sense, the antinomians, the ones who want to throw off the law too. Look in verse 40, they... They devour widows' houses. Now, scribes were not rich by inheritance. Actually, their money, their income came from offerings that people would give. And here is the picture of them going into the houses of widows and praying upon them so that they received monetary gain from them. In other words, they're in a sense sort of extorting money from these particular widows. And both these views of false religion, the, the legalist on one hand and the antinomian on the other hand, are, are both seen actually in the same person. And the, true can be, the same can be true of everybody, that we bounce back and forth between trying to be the legalist and working harder to prove ourselves to God. And on the other hand, saying, I am tired of this, I'm going to throw it all off. Because both of them reject the gospel of grace. Now, what does that reveal about how false religion sort of expresses itself in the lives of people? Two ways. First is this, a sense of superiority. A sense of superiority. Look in verse 39. They have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. They feel as though they are better. They, it, indeed, they want to be better than everybody else. They want the, the prominent seats. They want to be recognized. And that sense of superiority often leads to a, a judgmental or critical attitude towards other people. That was their view. They looked down upon the, the common folks of the day. They're not as spiritual as, they are, as we are. They're not as religious as we are. But you know, that... That kind of attitude can exist in the heart without ever being brought to the tongue. As we can look at other people and be critical of them. 
They don't parent the way that the Bible seems to say that we ought to parent. They're not, they're not giving as much as I'm giving to the church. Or their, their environmental footprint is greater than mine. Look at that car that they drive. Look at all the exhaust they're putting out. Aren't I better? It's a sense of superiority over others. Now, I think some people probably wear that superiority on their sleeves, but probably most of us are unaware of just how critical we might be of other people and how our critical nature even uh, doesn't put its radar upon our own fallings. There was a German man who led a guide, or excuse me, who guided a tour in Germany. And he took this tour through one of the concentration camps. And while he was speaking of that and all the atrocities of World War II, he spoke of how the German guards would go to work each day. And like good Germans who were always faithful to do things just right, they were ordered to kill 1,000 people exactly every day. And that's what they did. They killed 1,000 Jews in the concentration camp Exactly. No more and no less. And then they would go home and they would enjoy their dinner of beer and bratwurst and they would play with their children and they would listen to fine music and then they would get up the next morning and go to work and do it all over again. And the guide with with anger in his voice said, I don't know how my father and his generation could have let this happen. And his anger just got the best of him and said that he had not even spoken to his father in years because he couldn't bring himself to the point where he could understand how could they let this kind of atrocity happen. Later on that day, they got to the hotel in Berlin. And as they were entering into the hotel, he looked on the sidewalk and there were the the drug dealers and the prostitutes and those who were there for all kinds of pleasures. And he began to speak with great bitterness in his heart towards them. I can't wait till we get a new administration in our government that will clean up this riffraff. And what he didn't realize was the very same sense of superiority was in his own heart that was in his father's heart. And that same sense of superiority is the very thing that Jesus in his gospel of grace wants to drive away from us. But there's a second way here. It's not only the sense of superiority, it's a sense of actually the opposite, inferiority. Verse 40 here, we're told that for a pretense, the scribes make long prayers and they would do so in public. Now, Jesus actually connects this activity to uh, the way in which the scribes would go out into the public square and the, says this in the Sermon on the Mount and they would pray out loud before everybody else. Why? So that they could be praised by men. You see, when we have a works-based mentality, there's such a sense of inferiority in our own hearts that we've got to have the praise of others. And so you might say in two different ways, this legalistic false religion is lived out. In one, we see ourselves as better, but in the other, we see ourselves as those who are desperately 
needing affirmation because we know that we can never actually live up. It's like a child who struggles to trust in her father. And since false religion flows from false views about who God is, we need to think about how we are presenting God to the world. What are we showing to the world about who God is? What could people work out about Jesus from watching our lives just this week? The religious leaders struggled against Jesus because really the message of grace, the message of the gospel of grace in some ways is the most frightening message that we can possibly hear. To the one it says, you'll never measure up in your own power. You need me to save you. To the other, it says sin is real. You really are a sinner and my law declares it to be so. And you need me to be your savior and to be your Lord. And to both, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me and I will wash you. And I will make you clean. Let me be your Lord and your Savior. Trust in me. Sadly, the person who never settles upon a belief in Christ as Lord and Savior will ultimately receive the very thing that he's worked so hard to avoid. Jesus says for those people, they will receive the greater condemnation. That's where false religion leads. The greater condemnation. But Jesus says there's another way. A greater and more glorious way. And it's this. The true knowledge of God leads to true devotion to God. And that's the very thing that Jesus wants to teach in the next episode. Jesus has asked the question of the scribes. Basically, who am I as the Messiah? He's exposed the legalism of the scribes to his disciples. And now he wants to give a living example to his disciples. And he sits down, we're told in verse 41, opposite the treasury in the temple courtyard. And he's watching people. They're putting money into the offering. There were 13 trumpet-shaped offering boxes. And people would go over and drop in their money. There was no paper money in that day. And so everybody would hear what was being dropped in. And you can imagine, now this is... This is Passover week. Probably 200,000 people were swelling into Jerusalem. And there were great wealthy people, rich beyond measure. And they're coming and they're making these great offerings in these metal trumpets. And everyone is hearing what is being offered in these uh, trumpets to the temple treasury. Now having warned his disciples about the distortion of the truth about God, he takes the opportunity now to teach his disciples. Verse 43, he called his disciples to them. He's calling them and he wants to show them two things. He says, truly I say to you, he's looking at this poor widow who has two small copper coins that our translation says make a penny. It's actually a little bit less than a penny. And he called his disciples and says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And he wants to say, let me, let me tell you two things. When you come to God and you know Him as the good and gracious God who would give up His own Son for you, then the first thing you possess is a spirit of freedom. A spirit of freedom. 
The spirit of bondage is what leads to the false religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. But it's the spirit of freedom that gives us and you might say endows us with great powers, gospel powers to live the same kind of devotion that this woman lived for God. Here she is putting in everything that she has. Everything that she has to live on. Why? It's because she knows God to be a good and gracious God. Satan, in effect, said to Eve and to Adam, take it because God will give you nothing. Jesus says in the gospel, receive it because God will give you everything. And when you have everything, you're happy to give it away. Which is the very thing that this woman does. She gives everything, all that she has to live on. The child of God rests in the gospel of grace that declares that, that our value is something that is set by God Himself in the gospel. It is not set by our works it's never set by how much we do for God. It's never set by our merit. It is always set by the gospel of grace. It says, Jesus gives you all of his righteousness. And when you know that, you know that you want to give everything back to God. Here in God's calculation, as I told the children, the woman gives far more than anybody else. They give out of their wealth, sort of like us giving our pocket change to a homeless person on the street. It means very little to us. But this woman, she had nothing left, nothing to live on. What's important is not the amount, but the sacrifice that she gives. It demonstrates a real love for God. She wants no attention. She wants no praise from other people. She only wanted to give to God. And that's exactly what faith in the goodness and graciousness of God looks like. The legalist, the antinomian, they, they look at God with great suspicion that He's holding something back. But the child of God who has received all that Jesus has says, I'll give everything back to you. Back to you. If you want to know if you have a clear sense of the gospel of grace, look at the way in which you handle your money. Because nothing in all the world will demonstrate what we really believe about God than the way in which we handle our money. We do not want to let it go. It is our security at many times and many points in life. And the way in which we handle it says everything about who we believe God to be. Will He be gracious to me in the future? Will He care for my needs if I give my whole life to Him? Second thing is this, and I'll conclude with this. It's not only a spirit of freedom, but it's a spirit of trust. In comparison to the rich person who puts the large sum in, the woman's offering is very minuscule. And yet what God says in his counting is that I can use this small two copper coin offering the same way that I can use a million dollar offering. Do you believe that? 
that if you were to drop all that you could give, though it be infinitesimally smaller than someone who could give a great sum, God could do just as great a thing with that as he could with the greater sum. I went on a mission trip to Peru a number of years ago and a young man by the name of Curtis went with us. He was very excited. We were there to do really manual labor as we witnessed the gospel to these people. And while we were there on the very first day, we were basically laying a foundation for a soup kitchen on the side of a mountain. And Curtis twisted his ankle. He could no longer work. There was nothing he could do. He was frustrated. He was angry even. God, why did you bring me on this mission trip? Why did you bring me all the way to South America? And now I can't even work. I can't do anything. Yet I still have a picture of Curtis sitting on some concrete steps next to the work site. He couldn't work. He couldn't lift any of the rock and shovel anything. But he sat there as someone who had learned how to speak Spanish and he taught a little girl the Scriptures. And she came to know the Lord Jesus. All of our great efforts, moving rock, laying a foundation, trying to build something. And Curtis did the greatest work of all. God is able to use the smallest offerings that we make to Him to do the greatest things. He says, trust me. Trust me that I'm good. Trust me that I'm gracious. And trust me with all that you have. And I will build my kingdom with it. Isn't that wonderful? That's what Jesus does. The spirit of suspicion of God's graciousness makes us actually incapable of hearing the gospel of grace. This, this great throng heard him gladly. In a few days, they will be the same crowd that will yell out, crucify him, crucify him. But we've been given different ears, haven't we? We're those who hear the sweet music of the gospel. We're those who now have an affection for Christ, for who He truly is. One who wants to bless, one who wants to redeem, and wants to give us pleasures forevermore. That's the God that we serve. Let's give Him everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You and we know that You love us. Lord, we ask that You would remove from us the last bits of a suspicious heart, one that would seek to be legalistic and works-based because we must take it for ourselves. Lord, free us of that, that we would withhold nothing from You but give you everything that we have because you have given us everything in your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.